A few years ago, I visited the Meteora monasteries in Greece. These are these ancient places of prayer built onto these sort of cliff-like rock formations. It's a very striking and beautiful setting, to say the least. And if you have ever been to an old Greek Orthodox worship space, then you can imagine that on the inside there are lots of icons. Lots of icons depicting biblical scenes and historical scenes and saints and martyrs. Bright colors and shimmering gold are sort of everywhere you look. The tour guide we were with stopped us in front of one particularly bright colored icon in the St. Stephanos Monastery depicting the last judgment. So Jesus was at the top, of course, reigning in glory, and there were throngs of people around, beside him and below him, prophets and heroes of all kinds. There were glowing halos blazing all over the place. And the guide pointed to the bottom of the icon, where a procession was being led into a garden. These are the righteous being led into paradise, he told us. Most of the folks in this procession had brightly colored robes and a generally dignified look about them. Lots were sort of clutching books in their hands like this. And at the head of the procession, leading the way into this wide open green space was this skinny, grizzled looking man in rags. His hair was wild and unkempt and he was carrying a cross. Who's leading the way? The tour guide asked us. This happened to be a group of pastors, and this question sort of seemed like child's play. We were all pretty sure we knew who this lonely cross-bearer was. It's Jesus, of course, several of us said. Duh. No, said the guide. He is the criminal crucified next to Jesus. You remember him? The one who met Jesus for the first time on that fateful day? beside him in humiliation and suffering? The one who said simply, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? He's the one leading the procession. Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha and all the saints and heroes of faith follow after him. The crucified criminal leads the way. That icon took my breath away. What a strange faith this is, I remember thinking standing there in that ancient sanctuary. All around me, there were these images of people who had done amazing things, who'd performed incredible miracles and stayed faithful through horrific persecutions and brought the gospel to the farthest corners of the earth. And yes, they were all there, but they were taking their places in line behind this person we know almost nothing about, this person who simply admitted that he'd made a mess of his life and asked Jesus for mercy. He's the one at the front. What a strange faith this is. James and John don't understand this yet in our gospel reading today. Teacher, they say to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's a rather suspicious thing to say, right? I'm going to ask you for something, and before I tell you what it is, I want you to say yes. You'll notice Jesus does not take the bait. Like a wise parent, he simply asks, what is it you want me to do for you? And what James and John ask for is truly something remarkable. 
Grant us to sit, they reply, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They want the seats of honor in whatever victory banquet is coming up. They want the chairs beside the king, the lead roles in the parade, the best seats in the house. It's easy to mock the two brothers here. I mean, really, have they been listening to a word Jesus said? Ever since they've been keeping company with Jesus, he's been tending to the sick, the lonely, the marginalized, and teaching them to do the same. Not two chapters ago, an argument broke out among all the disciples about which of them was the greatest, and he very patiently told them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And immediately before our reading today, like in the very preceding verses, Jesus spoke candidly with his disciples about his coming death. See, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will flock him, they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise again. This wasn't the first time he talked like this either. It was the third time he told his disciples about his imminent death at the hands of the powerful. And still the sons of Zebedee, good old James and John, were thinking about securing the best seats. Come on, guys. Really? It's easy to mock the brothers here for their insensitive, tone-deaf request. But maybe we should be a little humbler in our judgment. After all, the disciples are fearful at this point in the story. Jesus had clearly gotten himself crossways with the religious leadership. Tension was brewing and growing stronger, and Jesus himself kept talking about dying. The world around them was uncertain and unsure, and from that place of fear, James and John asked for something very, very familiar. Higher place on the ladder. We know something about that. I think. I mean, we may not have asked Jesus for the seats next to him in glory, but who hasn't felt that security and happiness and fulfillment are there to be found just a few steps higher than where you are? If I could just get into that higher salary bracket, if I could just get into that top-tier graduate school, if I could just get that promotion in my organization, if I could just be friends with the right people, if I could just boost my social media presence by a few thousand more followers, if I could just climb a little higher, then everything would be all right. That way of thinking, believing that life is about scurrying to the top of the ladder, getting as much status and honor and wealth and prestige as you can, is as familiar as the world around us. It's also as old as the Bible. How about those seats of honor, Jesus? Can you hook us up? Jesus is incredibly patient with the disciples through this whole encounter, which leads me to think we should be too. He tells them plainly, once again, that it's not actually up to him who will be at his right and left hand. And in fact, those spots will very soon be filled by criminals crucified on either side. When the rest of the disciples hear about James and John's request and tempers flare, he gently tells them yet again that life is not about climbing the ladder. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. 
And then he says something very interesting. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom for many. I don't know how you hear that language. But for many of us, a whole sort of constellation, an elaborate scheme gets conjured up by those words of a God who's angry at human sin and who needed a sacrifice to even the scales, and of Jesus as the one who came to die paying the price humanity couldn't pay, offering himself as a ransom. That's one way theologians have tried to make sense of Jesus' death over the centuries. But here's the thing. You can spend all day looking around in this passage for sin and forgiveness and a God who's in need of appeasing, and you won't find them. They're not there to be found. So maybe the reason Jesus is talking about ransom here is really quite different. Maybe he means quite simply that he's giving his life to free people from this whole seats of honor, lording it over, becoming great ones, ladder climbing business. His whole life, all of it, his teaching and his feeding and his healing and his community building and his table sharing and his justice seeking and his confrontation with the powerful that will ultimately lead to his death, his whole life is there to free people from that old lie that life is about getting higher, getting ahead. No, Jesus says, with the great statement of his own life, it's about something else entirely. It's about serving. It's about including. It's about loving. I've come here to show you that in countless ways, and I've come here to make it possible. That's what I hear in this passage today, a declaration of freedom, an invitation into a way of life that is so much better, so much richer, so much more promising than climbing that tired old ladder. You really can live differently, Jesus says. Come and see. I want to come back to that monastery again. You might imagine that all the saints gathered in that icon there, the ones in line behind the criminal carrying his cross, would look a little bit confused, a little grumpy and put out that this whole big procession is being led by someone so humble, somebody who's done so little to earn him a place like that. I mean, what continents did he first bring the gospel to, huh? What oceans did he brave? What persecutions did he endure? What miracles did he perform? Who does he think he is, anyway? We might imagine these great heroes of faith grumbling as they take their places in line behind this unnamed man with his messy hair, because that way of thinking is so ingrained in us, so deeply and profoundly familiar. But no, there's no sign of discontent or jealousy on anyone's face in the picture. All that is gone. All that is burned away in the joy God has made possible for everyone in Jesus. James and John are there somewhere in that procession too, lost in praise like all the rest. Like everyone else, they've been freed from those old ways by Jesus, who gave his whole life as a ransom for many, freeing us for what really matters, not titles or resumes, 
or accolades, but just one thing, love. Amen.